6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapter 32. And right now, today, tonight, while we talk, there is a man at the throne of God, a man that is qualified to be our kinsman redeemer. And at the appointed time, he can step forth and he can take title to that which he purchased. And what happens in Revelation chapter 4, Revelation singular, from 4 through chapter 19, is his taking possession of that which he purchased. And it involves dispossessing the land of the usurpers. Now, if you want to understand this in smaller model terms, study the book of Joshua, where Yehoshua dispossessed the land of, its, of the usurpers and conquered it um, with his chosen people. In that case, it was Israel taking the land of Canaan, dispossessing the, the Canaanites, the seven tribes that remained. Three were put down, and there were seven left, and those seven tribes are seven kingdoms are the subject of the conquest under Joshua, but actually under Jesus Christ, if you read Joshua 5 carefully. And it becomes a model of the book of Revelation. Except the book of Revelation, we're going to move the decimal point over. I guess we could go on and on, and there's no limit to this, but the point is, is that uh, this concept that we have introduced here in Jeremiah of the title deed, the purchasing of this land, is the Holy Spirit's way of alerting you about title insurance, alerting you to the idea of a title deed. And to fill out the model in Jeremiah 32, you have to visualize after the captivity when Jeremiah's kinsman redeemer will show up and perform the requirements on the uh, deed and break the seals and take possession of the land that was purchased at Anathoth. And that's a small microcosm a uh, micro, uh, micro example, if you will, of what's ha going to happen later when none other than Jesus Christ will take the title deed and since he's qualified, he will break the seals and take possession of that which he purchased so long ago uh, to be our inheritance. Not just the land of Israel, the land of the... the, the, the there's nothing nothing local about the book of Revelation. It's, uh, it's very Jewish on the one hand, but very global uh, in its uh, idioms. Okay, that's not bad. We got down to verse 15. Okay, at this point, let's just keep moving. And in, in, uh, in Jeremiah 32, verse 16. Now, when I delivered the deed of, pur of the purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed unto the Lord, saying, Now we're going to have quite a prayer here, by the way. And I think probably the best thing to do is just read it through because it's pretty self-explanatory. I've got a few notes and things, but I'll probably just distract you. Let's just go through it. Uh, verse 17. Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth 
by thy great power and outstretched arm, and there's nothing too hard for thee. What a great opening. What a good opening. When you pray, do you start that way? You know, someone taught me once to pray with acts, right? Adoration, confession, right? Thanksgiving, supplication. Very good, yeah. That's not a bad order. Adoration, confession, and uh, thanksgiving. And then when you've done all that, then you put, you know, we tend to just put S. Hey, Lord, here's my menu. My, here's my shopping list today, you know. Um, yeah, I suspect that the ACTS model isn't a bad one and, and probably uh, also in dominance of time. You know, you can do, you, it's interesting to see Jeremiah open with adoration. Behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and outstretched arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. How beautiful that is, to adore him. But to adore him specifically. For whose benefit, yours or his? Yours gets you in the right scope. Reminds you who you're talking to. Thou showest loving kindness unto thousands and recompensest the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of the children after them. The great, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name. Great in counsel, mighty in work, for thine eyes are open upon all the ways of the sons of men to give every one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. That's scary. That's scary. Now, I, I, admittedly, this, still, this is still adoring, but boy, there's some heavy stuff here. Uh, fortunately, down here, we're going to talk about mercies, but uh, when you get down there, you realize that's the important part because I'm not too excited about him, uh, the fact that he knows all my ways because my ways aren't that presentable. And uh, so uh, and, uh, the fact that he is a just God scares me. If that's all I knew, I would be very scared. Fortunately, he's very merciful, and he's gone out of his way to take care of my inadequacies by putting me in Jesus Christ. But the adoration goes on. The great, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name. Great in counsel, mighty in work. For thine eyes are open upon all the ways of the sons of men to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. And I love the way Chuck Smith puts it. He has a tender way of expressing it. The Lord loves us so much he can't take his eyes off it. And neat. Carry, if he keeps his eyes on me all the time. But, uh, verse 20. Who has set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt even unto this day? That's interesting, but I won't get into that one tonight. And in Israel, and among other men, and has made thee a name as at this day, and has brought forth thy people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and with wonders and with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm and with great terror. You know, it fascinates me all through the Old Testament how the Holy Spirit uses that particular event, the exodus from Egypt, as an identity piece. The Lord did a lot of amazing things. You go through the Scripture, you know, I mean, the flood of Noah, you're talking about all kinds of things that are pretty awesome. But it's interesting, the one that emerges as the sign, the, the real authentication, the real uh, main, main event was this exodus from Egypt in many respects. Verse 22, And hast given them this land which thou didst swear to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they came in and possessed it. But they obeyed not thy voice, neither walked in thy law. 
They have done nothing at all that thou hast commanded them to do. Therefore thou hast caused all this evil to come upon them. Behold the siege mounds. They are come unto the city to take it, and the city is given to the hand of the Chaldeans that fight against it because of the sword and of the famine and of the pestilence. And what thou hast spoken has come to pass, and behold, thou seest it. See, now he's not prophesying here. You can look out over the wall, and there it is out there, the siege mounds and the, and the clamor of the troops on the siege. Thou hast said unto me, O Lord God, buy the field with money and take witnesses, for the city is given into the land of the Chaldeans. Then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will give this city unto the hand of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And all the Chaldeans that fight against the city shall come and set fire to this city and burn it with the houses and upon whose roofs they have offered incense unto Baal and poured out drink offerings unto other gods to provoke me to anger. We've talked about rooftops. You understand that they're like, yeah, okay, we've talked about all that. By the way, that they're going to burn the city with fire. You want to know an interesting little irony? In Deuteronomy 13, it's interesting. In fact, I might turn to it. Deuteronomy 13, there's the rules, the law, um, what they're supposed to do if they come across idol-worshiping nations. In Deuteronomy 13, we start about verse 12. Uh, they're instructed in the Torah to say, If thou shalt hear a report in one of thy cities which the Lord thy God hath given thee to dwell there, saying, Certain men, worthless fellows, are gone out from among you and have withdrawn the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which ye have not known. Then, thou shalt, uh, sh then shalt thou inquire and make search and ask diligently, and behold, if it be truth, then the thing certain that such abomination is wrought among you, thou shalt surely smite the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, destroying it utterly, and all that is therein and the cattle thereof with the edge of the sword. And thou shalt gather all the spoil of it in the midst of the street thereof, and thou shalt burn with fire the city and all the spoil thereof every whit for the Lord thy God, and it shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. That was a punishment. That's what they were supposed to do if they encountered idolatry. What's wrong with Jerusalem? They're idol-worshipping. What's God going to do with Jerusalem? cut it down with the edge of the sword and burn it. And he's raised up the Babylonians to do that. The Babylonians don't know that. But God is using them to enforce Deuteronomy 13. Interesting, isn't it? It always fascinates me how God uses his law consistently. When Joshua entered the land, in the, land, in the book of Joshua, and they and the nations federate themselves under Adonai Zedek, this king that calls himself the Lord of Righteousness, he ends up defeating that Adonai Zedek in the Battle of Beth Horon, Joshua, about chapter 10. Famous battle where the sun stands still, the sun and the moon and all that. The enemies are defeated by signs of the sun and the moon. And what defeats them? They're stoned. What was the capital form of capital punishment for blasphemy in Israel? Stoning. Now, this Canaanite king calls himself the Lord of Righteousness and confederates the, uh, the tribes to fight against Joshua, and that's uh, apparently blasphemy, because what wipes them out? Meteorites. Lord's marksmanship is outstanding, because 
It falls on the Canaanites, it doesn't hurt the Israelites. That's a pretty sharp, especially when those meteorites are put into orbit thousands of years earlier. But they wipe them out by stoning. In the book of Revelation, in the analogous passage on the planet Earth, what falls on men? 200-pound hailstones. I don't know if you've ever heard, had, you know, tennis ball-sized hailstones. They can do a lot of damage. These are big ones, really big ones. Um, but it's interesting. What's the form of punishment? Stoning. What's the crime? Blasphemy. Interesting how God is consistent. What do you do with a city that is idol-worshiping? You burn it with fire. Peter, in his epistle, tells us, reminds us that Noah's promise was that God would not flood the earth with water. And Peter points out, read the fine print. Doesn't say he's not going to flood the earth. He says with water he won't do it. Next time it's with fire. Or the elements shall melt away with the fervent heat and so forth. Burning, why? Because Deuteronomy 13. When you, when you really have the cosmic perspective of God's plan, you go back and read the book of Genesis and you go through the Torah, it's fascinating because you realize all these seeds are planted there, way back, way back there. I inadvertently got a little too far. I got through the prayer, and I wanted just to outline the prayer before we left it. It begins with the person and the work of God, speaks of his boundless grace, speaks of his wisdom in terms of all deeds and, and his justice. Fortunately, it also speaks of mercies, but it also points out the response. The, the, it confesses the sin of Israel in terms of uh, having uh, ingratitude, uh, uh, ungrateful response to God's mercies. Prayer worth your study. But okay, we got to have that into, down here into the uh, burning and so forth. Uh, to what, what, verse 29? Verse 30. For the children of Israel and children of Judah have only done evil before me from their youth. For the children of Israel have only provoked me to anger with the work of their hands, saith the Lord. For this city hath been to me a provocation of mine anger and of my fury from the day that they build it, even unto this day, that I should remove it from before my face. How interesting. From the day they built it, who built Jerusalem? Who built the temple? Solomon, the first king that finished the temple. The first king that, 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 that completed the temple was Solomon. What king led them into idolatry? Interesting, isn't it? Okay. From the day that they built it, even unto this day, that I should remove it from before my face because of all the evil of the children of Israel and of the children of Judah that they have done to provoke me to anger. They, their kings, their princes, their priests, and their prophets, and the men of Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they have turned unto me the back, yet not the face. And though I taught them, rising up early and teaching them, yet have they not hearkened to receive instruction. But they set their abominations in the house, which is called by my name to defile it. And they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire into Molech, which I commanded them not, neither came it into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Now, this is just an anthropomorphic phrase. This is so absurd, it never occurred to him to prohibit it. That's what he's saying. And it's obviously anthropomorphic because it never came into his mind. Obviously, he knows all things. It's just a way of communicating. It's an anthropomorphic phrase. But they're, they're so obscene that they've dreamed up things to do that never occurred to God to prohibit. That's what he's, in effect, saying. 
Now, therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel concerning this city of which ye say, It shall be delivered in the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence. Behold, I will gather them. Now, here it shifts gears. This is typical in prophecy. We're going to see a promise, but the scope of the promise is far beyond just the return from Babylon. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries. God is looking ahead not to the regaining of the land from the return of Babylon, but far beyond that. I will gather them out of all countries to which I have driven them in mine anger and in my fury and in my great wrath. And I will bring them again into this place and I will cause them to dwell safely. And they shall be my people and I will be their God and I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them and I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts, and they shall not depart from me. This is an echo, of course, of chapter 32, or 31, which we were on the last time. Yea, I will rejoice over them in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land assuredly with my whole heart and with my whole soul. Interesting phrase for God to use, isn't it? And thus saith the Lord, as I have brought all this great evil upon this people, so will I bring upon all the, them all the good that I have promised them. And the field shall be brought in this land, of which ye say it is desolate without man or beast. It is given to the hand of the Chaldeans. Men shall buy fields for money, and sign deeds, and seal them, and take witnesses of, in the land of Benjamin, and in the places about Jerusalem, and the cities of Judah, and the cities of the mountains, and the cities of Shephelah, and the cities of the Negev. And I will cause their captivity to return, saith the Lord. That is, when he says that captivity returning means reversed. Okay. Now, it's interesting, Benjamin's mentioned first. Why? Because Anathoth, the, the place that Jeremiah did the token example, was an Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. So this is this whole digression by the Lord himself is um, uh, a references, if you will. It's an excursion from the fact that he's had Jeremiah do the first one to purchase a piece of property and seal the deed. And this verse 44 ties it all up in a broader uh, uh, sense, a sense far beyond just the return from Babylon. 33, verse 1. 33 concludes, by the way, this three-chapter so-called Book of Constellation. 31, 32, and 33 are a unit, if you will. 33 is uh, pretty straightforward, so I think we can just go right on through it. And 33, one more over the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah the second time while he was yet shut up in the court of the prison, saying, Thus saith the Lord, the maker of it, the Lord who formed it to establish it, the Lord is his name. Call unto me, and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Now, that's your memory verse for the evening. 33, 3. That's a dandy. Put that on your dressing table. Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. That's a promise. The Lord gives you exciting promise. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel concerning the houses of the city, concerning the houses of the kings of Judah, which are thrown down by the siege mounds and by the sword. I can't, I can't leave verse 3. I've got to come back to that. And I shouldn't rush through. I was, I was thinking we could just probably breeze right on through 33, but there's a lot here. There's a prophecy of the, the branch and so forth, so let's not, let's not rush ourselves. Call unto me, and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. That's a promise. The Holy Spirit will do that to you. And when he does, uh, that will be one of the most exciting experiences of your life. I'm one of these guys that's a very self-indulgent guy. I've probably done everything there is to do. I haven't done skydiving or hang gliding. Those are the only two I've missed, I think. I've done just about everything else. 
I've flown all kinds of high-performance aircraft. I've done diving. I've done all, all the crazy things that one might want to do. Okay. Um, the most exciting events of my life have been when the Lord has revealed to me something I didn't know before in a supernatural way. He does that to all of us. It's not some unique thing Chuck Moosler has. It's not that at all. When you study the Scripture and you wrestle with it and you really search something out, that uh, in, in you in your, in your commitment to Him are seeking after Him, He will supernaturally reveal something to you, and when He does, it will be so obvious that it's Him that will blow you away. I have been in the late hours by myself in my study, the house darkened except for my couple of books chasing something, and have him show me something so conspicuous, so dramatic, so mind-blowing that I've actually fallen on my knees on the floor in tears, in gratitude, just blown away by the experience. He will do that to you. That's what the Holy Spirit, that's his mission. Not his only thing, but that's what he does do and very, very exciting. You can claim this promise. You can't claim it as a, you know, in, in lieu of idleness. He's going to expect you to call unto me, and he will answer. That means you've got to ask. That means you've got to, got, to, got to pursue. He will do that, which reminds me of something else that came up this week. You know, uh, everybody always asks me, how do I know when the Lord's leading? Right? How many of you have had concerned about the Lord leading you. Okay. It's, it's, uh, one of my favorite verses, I memorized this as a kid, but it came, to, uh, came home to me in a different way recently. Proverbs chapter 3. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. You didn't know we were going to get a memory verse night. You got... You got uh, got Jeremiah there to memorize, 33.3, but let's talk, let's take Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. This is, I think, the first verses I ever memorized after John 3.16, I guess. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Sounds easy, doesn't it? Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. Don't limit yourself with your own horizons. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. I must have been a teenager. I made up one, made up one of my little cards, you know, and I memorized that and claimed I've claimed that all through the Naval Academy in my career many, many times. But something leapt out at, bear in mind, here's a verse that I memorized more than 30 years ago. And there's a fra- the first phrase in verse 6 jumped out at me lately. I never realized the condition to his directing my paths. In all thy ways acknowledge him. Not secretly. Not in just some of your ways. Not in your private ways. Not just on Sundays. In all thy ways acknowledge him. That's not hard to figure out. And it's not hard to do. But it's worth doing. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not to thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. If you are looking for the Lord's leading, and I've had a lot of people, I think that's the most common 
commonly asked question, aside from scriptural this, that, and people ask, how do I know what the Lord really wants me to do? He'll direct your path, but what's his condition? In all thy ways acknowledge him. I challenge you with that. I challenge you with that. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. And if you call upon him, he will. Jeremiah 33.3. Those are your Bible verses tonight. I, I think I'm going to reconsider. Rather than charge into chapter 33 and get halfway through, I'm going to uh, leave that for next time. I will take you down to verse 3 so that you can memorize it for next time. Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Real estate lesson tonight. We focused on the land, but I want to emphasize that when uh, the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, executed his act of redemption in Ruth chapter 4, he picked up two things. He picked up the lands for Naomi, but he picked up something else too, a Gentile bride. Boaz acquired Ruth. And uh, the, very the more you study Ruth, the more you realize it's a very deliberate model that the Holy Spirit has put there of what the, our kinsman redeemer is going to redeem. Not just the land that he purchased, something else that he purchased simultaneously. In fact, it was the focus of the purchase in the first place. In the parable of Matthew 13, it wasn't the field the man wanted, it was the treasure in the field. And that treasure in the field is you. He purchased you. You are eligible to be redeemed, because he has paid the price. All you have to do is count it true. All you have to do is accept it. Don't blaspheme his name by trying to add anything to it. Just accept what he has completed. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.